This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today I'm speaking with Brian Kime, Associate Director of Threat Intelligence and Hunt Lead at Carrier. Brian, thanks for chatting with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Thank you. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure thing. I'm an intelligence professional, so I'm getting close to two decades within the military and the private sector and doing all sorts of intelligence things on active duty in the private sector in this thing we now call cyber intelligence, tons of security certifications and and a really diverse work experience across vendors and enterprises. What attracted you to Carrier? So Carrier is this like crazy, like old company really. And they've been around, I mean, they've invented modern air conditioning and home comfort, right? But they were spun off of United Technologies a few years back after UTC merged with Raytheon. And so it's this really large company that actually is building its own security program from the ground up, basically, because it wasn't really part of what Carrier did at the time. Uh, when they went independent, they had to build up some of these things. And so we're building a really cool, really awesome cybersecurity program. And we're just attracting a lot of like great talent to protect, you know, like dozens of brands out there and factories around the world and people that are making, you know, really important cold chain solutions and residential and, and commercial heating and ventilation and cooling systems. So it's it's things that everyone kind of sees, but it's kind of like hidden and, and no one really, really pays much attention to that until they stop working, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. That is how that goes. So I had the chance to uh, look at your history and, and uh, your CV and whatnot. And I see, you know, you've shifted roles a couple times from mm-hmm. practitioners to analysts, you know, back to practitioner. Can you share with us what's it like to kind of have straddled the fence, you know, kind of worked at, worked on both sides of the fence and how do those experiences contrast? So people ask me like, what are you an expert in? And it's kind of hard to nail that down. I think, you know, because of this experience, I kind of think I'm like this, like expert generalist in some ways. And that may sound like I'm denigrating my own experiences, but having been both on the enterprise defender side that's defending customer data and industrial processes and so forth, and then spending time in the vendors where we're producing a product or a service that is enabling those enterprise defenders there. I get to see both sides of it. You know, I've seen folks that have spent their whole career on the vendor side and that just spout on social media. Well, if they only did multi-factor authentication, if they only had a long password, if they, if they just turned off RDP, like everything would be great. But the reality is that when you're in the enterprise, you have a business that is trying to make money and generate value for folks. And it's just not that simple. I worked at one place where our password standard for a long time until some tech was upgraded literally was dependent upon a really old mainframes like capabilities because that mainframe was so central Mm -hmm. to how the business ran that everybody was kind of limited to uh, a what we would call an insecure password link today so someone just in the vendor side screaming have a 20 character randomized password and whatever like it's not the reality it's not doable 
for a lot of enterprises. And then, like you mentioned, I took a step back from the practitioner area and went into research. So I was at Forrester for almost two years and I got to lead three research areas, industrial control systems, security, vulnerability, risk management, and of course my passion, threat intelligence. And so getting to talk to tons of vendors and hear about all their innovations and hear about the customer insights that they have collected and then talk to Forrester clients, enterprise clients that are seeking advice on doing things more securely was fascinating. And especially in the manufacturing and, and OT side of the house, it was really incredible to see the wide range of maturities. You had some companies that I talked to that had really mature programs, lots of segregation. They had a security tool. They could tell you pretty closely how many assets they had. But then on the other side, you might find a company that you know, the admin to the CEO probably can send, you know, a bad ping to a programmable logic controller and potentially harm a industrial process and create some safety concerns for the employees in that factory. And so just like on the OT side, the range of maturity is just enormous and every industrial process is going to have its nuances and, and everything. And it's not like in corporate IT where like a SQL database is kind of a SQL database, right? But PLCs can do all sorts of crazy things and, you know, depending on how the the engineers configure those things. So OT is just fascinating, you know, just using computers to manipulate the physical world, right? And getting to do that research and threat intelligence was awesome. Definitely one of the highlights of my professional career. And then so coming back into like enterprise, you know, no surprise that folks are being told to do zero trust now. And I'm over here raising my hand, like, I'm not just a threat intel guy now, like, I've got some experience over here on the zero trust side. And, you know, I can kind of bring all that to bear. And like you mentioned, I mean, I think I have this really unique kind of, you know, almost expert generalist kind of point of view on, on cybersecurity now. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, that's the secret to success in life, I think, is, um, uh, <laughs> you know, I worked in academia for a long time doing high performance computing and doing enterprise security for a Big Ten university. And it was often where I found that people who were overly specialized were really limited outside of their specialty, like they just mm -hmm. couldn't and they had spent so much time. And so it's not so flattering and I don't actually mean it, but the joke I used to tell people is that from my observation, PhD stands for pigeonhole degree because that's all you know now, you know? So right. anyway, you know, you talked about people saying, if you could just turn this off or just turn that off, the world would be so much easier. It's always easy for people to make those claims. It's remarkable when the early APT campaigns were in the news, I'm talking like ways back, right? Aurora and stuff like that. They leveraged a lot of Java. They would look, is there a JDK on this system? And if there is, I'm going to live off the land and eat out of mm -hmm. that. And everybody mm -hmm. was like, okay, well, Java's got to go. Well, bad news for everybody. There's major, major systems that were written in this yeah. where like whole businesses run on it. And at that point, it's like, well, if we just unplug this thing and go home, we'll be safe, right? And it's like, yeah, but where will your paycheck come from? You know, so it's always funny to me. So talking about OT and critical systems. So given your experience defending critical infrastructure, you know, what measures do you think are most effective, you know, in protecting industrial control systems against cyber threats? Yeah, a few things, definitely. Tabletop exercises are huge. So let's start kind of with like the administrative control here. 
So bring in the various stakeholders and walk through different scenarios. Bring out that incident response plan if you have one. If not, create it during these exercises, right? And, you know, have your your OT business unit leadership, have the internal security teams. If you have internal incident responders, them. If you have a retainer with a incident response firm, bring someone in from there. Sometimes they can actually help you design the exercise. Bring in senior executives, bring in lawyers from your own general counsel, your external counsel that specializes in cyber breaches. All these stakeholders that you would work with in a real scenario, bring them in and work out that if if ransomware impacted the ERP and you cannot send data into the OT environments to start producing more physical products, you know, what happens then? Like, what do you do? Like, cause that's the biggest risk really to the OT side is, is ransomware in the IT that really just breaks these, some of these business processes. I mean, we saw that with like JBS foods and Colonial mm-hmm. pipeline and yep. Norse Kidro and all these where, and on and on real, the, the real incident wasn't in the factories. And so they just couldn't produce more product. You know, there was one guy printing off orders at Norse Kidro, I recall, and they were able to produce some product during their downtime, during their incident, because he had physical hard copies of, of what the buyers were requesting. And it's that like breaking of that disruption in the business process overall that harms the OT side in most cases, unless we're talking about a, a state nexus threat, like. Ukraine 2015, 2016, their electric grid, or like a Triton event in uh, Saudi Arabia at the refinery there. And now we're talking something very different. So yeah, have those tabletop exercises. And then we kind of mentioned it just briefly earlier, but Zero Trust for OT, I was going to start some research on that too. And it's not going to be, it wouldn't have been much different from the general Zero Trust model that Forrester talks about a lot and keeps evolving the research on. So really at the core of zero trust is whatever creates that business value. And so if you're a bank, you've got banking things, right? And if you're healthcare, you've got healthcare things. But if you're a manufacturer, the value is those physical goods that you make in those factories. And of course, control systems are key to automating and producing you know, quality products at scale. And so we want to focus our zero trust strategy around protecting those industrial processes. Mm-hmm. So we want to segment our networks as much as possible. So if we have an issue in like IT, it doesn't impact the issue in, in the OT side. Mm-hmm. If you have an issue in one factory, right? We don't really want that to impact all the other factories and shut down factories globally. And we've seen that in other ransomware incidents. I think there's a large auto manufacturer that had a, an IT ransomware incident and it shut down global manufacturing for a couple of days. We don't want to see that, right? So we, we want to build resilient OT architectures. And I think Zero Trust is, is really key to get there. The research on around Zero Trust initially started really at the network level, right? Segmenting networks, creating really small hyper-segmented networks that would contain a threat actor within there, right? Reduce the blast radius, as some folks like to say. These days now, though, identity is becoming even more important. And so I would stress to manufacturers out there that you need to segregate or segment your identities. So a factory worker should not be operating your manufacturing systems, your HMIs and PLCs and so forth. They're with the same credentials they would use to check their email (laughs) and access the internet. 
So however you want to do that, segment, you know, admin accounts and factory accounts, and maybe it's by business line, you know, the more you can segment the identities, the less damage a threat could cause by stealing the credentials, right? So that's, that's huge. So, you know, physically segment the networks as much as you can and segment your identities as much as you can. And that will help reduce the impact of any breach around the OT environment. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think Target, I think that was also the root cause on their breach was a HVAC contractor, a credential was leveraged to gain access to their VPN. And that VPN had full access to their network because they yep. believed, you know, presumably that that NDA or that that liability clause that was part of their contract covered them. And they saw that as a, you know, acceptable risk or, and they just hadn't done, like you said, maybe a tabletop exercise where they said, what happens at, you know, at this juncture, what if this happens, you know, where yep. people do the injects in the scenario, you know, I can't imagine that someone wouldn't have presented that scenario. So I, I have to assume they just didn't know to know. They know now, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> And, and that's another point that as we do automate our building systems, our comfort systems, fire and safety systems, and so forth there, we have to consider zero trust there as well, right? So you're kind of building IoT, you're building management systems. They should not be riding on the same network, <laughs> the same VLAN or however you segment as you know corporate IT. So we don't have scenarios where, yeah, a contractor that is coming in and maintaining that HVAC system or that fire suppression system, you know, can oops, easily just go into, you know, your data center or your factory floor or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, a big part of the the target breach, of course. And I did have a friend actually make that exact joke to me when I started at Carrier, you know, that I, I could be, you know, the the attack vector for some big breach, right? I'm like, hey, man, sure. don't don't wish that upon me, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Send them but yeah, we're integrating with so many technologies. I mean, there's, you know, fire suppression in factories, obviously, and the simple solution is to plug that thing in the same switch that the HMIs and the PLCs are on. But we want to physically separate these things so that when, when there is a disruption or a breach or an impact or something, we limit any kind of damage, you know, we limit access and so forth there. Oh, another thing that I actually should have mentioned is whereas most times you turn on something and the default is kind of allow, allow, we should start from a deny policy and then allow connectivity only to those things that are necessary for that tool or that uh, business process to function. So quick story from my forester days, right after the SolarWinds uh, campaign became public, we had a client that scheduled an inquiry with me and one of my zero trust analysts. And he was very zero trust skeptical. And he was describing what what had been going on at his organization. And he kind of casually mentioned, yeah, you know, well, thankfully we had a, like a really strict allow list for our solar winds gear. And it could really only talk to the manufacturer and like our, our internal network. And me and my teammate just golf clapped for this guy. And then like, poof, like he just kind of had an epiphany that's like, oh, I was doing zero trust right there. Right. You know, and that's what it's about because the infrastructure that the Russians use in that case were all brand new or secondhand uh, domains. And so by denying basically the rest of the internet, except for the vendor and his own internal network, like the breach just stopped right there. So that's something cheap. 
that any of us listening can do regarding zero trust. And there's a myth that zero trust is going to require a whole re-architecting your network and it's super expensive. I mean, anyone can just do IP tables and create a, um, a really small allow list for some of these like networking type of technologies. We don't need to give them full access to the internet, right? right. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, default deny and allow only what those things are needed to get the job done, whether it's people or machines, you know. Yeah, I have a Unix background and least privilege access is a core concept, right? Mm -hmm. But apparently there's something about that terminology that is a challenge. And so on one hand, I see the term zero trust become popular in our industry and I think like, well, duh. But then on the other hand, I think like, oh, apparently this ancient concept wasn't adopted by people because it wasn't obvious. And whoever coined that terminology of zero trust somehow opened the uh, philosophy, because it's a philosophy, right? It's a strategic approach to how to apply your tactics, right? It's like you said, it's deny, deny. It's that easy. But for some reason, the concept was foreign to everybody until somebody came and was like, spelled it out in Korean and just said zero trust. And now everybody gets it. So it's one of those things that I think like laymanization, what I didn't consider to be a lofty topic for what it's worth, but apparently even simple concepts need to be molded in, into some kind of presentable way. I saw that you had been an innovation liaison officer for the U.S. Army Reserve. Mm -hmm. Can you share any insights about how does the military approach risk management and in comparison to like, is it wildly different than OT ICS or is it similar or, and obviously, you know, don't violate your next SF-86, but, uh, you know, if you can share any insights there would be, I think folks would be interested to hear that. That's a really interesting question. So any junior, at least army leader is going to go through some risk management training for like, just like training events. Like if we're going to the range and we're going to get some iterations on our rifles, we do a risk management worksheet, right? And we, we talk about the different threats out there and we, we start with our inherent risk of, yeah, someone could get, have a negligent discharge and, and hurt their teammate, right? So how do we reduce risk to an acceptable level, right? And, you know, we have medics on staff and we have the range safeties and the tower and everything. And so, you know, risk management is something that you know, junior military leaders get, I think, from early in their career. And I think in business, in private sector, I think there's a lot of folks that don't get that until they're maybe a little more senior in the organization to really talk about risk and really do like a risk management worksheet type of scenario where they mm -hmm. talk, you know, inherent versus residual risk and stuff. And sometimes, you know, the answer is to accept the risk. And so... With the Army and innovation, you'll get a whole lot of opinions. You know, that there's risk in the Army not moving fast. There's a risk in using just the big prime contractors out there. And how we, we mitigate some of these risks, we haven't quite figured out, frankly. So the prime contractor thing, right? You have contractors out there that all they do is provide goods and services for the government and military. Well, there's a lot of really interesting, really you know, revolutionary technologies in startups and in smaller tech companies. And for them to try to sell to the government and the military, it's a huge, it's a risk to them. They have to build like a separate sales team 
and go to market and everything. And for a lot of them, it's just the juice isn't worth the squeeze, unfortunately. And so we've got some mismatch between the incentives and risk management and so forth between big primes and small vendors and academia even. And that's something that I saw in my last role with the, um, with the Army Reserves Innovation Command is how do we get those ideas and those innovations from academia students and startups and get them into military users' hands? And one way we, we solved this a little bit was we kind of did some like hackathon type things. And so the 3rd Infantry Division is a few hours down the road from me in Atlanta and they're one of the Army's you know, premier mechanized infantry units. They're going to be called you know, to contingencies around the world. They forward deployed to Poland a year ago when Russia's renewed invasion started. And they showed you know, resolve of NATO and like that there. But you know, coming back here to Atlanta, they had you know, little challenges that soldiers were seeing every day in training. And so they got connected with us. I was connected with Georgia Tech, my alma mater. I'm repping them with the hat today. And we said, hey, we've got some incredibly smart engineers and computer scientists over here. How about we bring your problems up here? Let's have like a weekend where your soldiers that are having these problems are mixing and mingling with our students here. And we have some researchers from the Georgia Tech Research Institute. And let's put all these minds together and let's see what we come up with. And these folks are creating mobile apps and prototypes you know, to solve these issues right there. Little small things that improve the lives of these soldiers. One thing we did here this past January was create like tactical types of decoys. So if you think back to World War II, we created a whole fake army to throw off where the Normandy landings would be. Well, we're talking like really short tactical types of decoys here, but because the sensors have evolved so much over 70 years since World War II, we don't have to just simulate visually a Bradley fighting vehicle. We have to simulate it in the electromagnetic spectrum. We have to simulate it in the thermal spectrum to fool all of the sensors that the adversaries have available to them. And we wanted to do this cheaply so that a host nation force really could do this, that we're, if we're partnering with them, you know, if we're training with them, like what raw materials would they have in their neighborhoods that they could do to simulate the thermal and the EMS and the visual signatures of their own equipment and, you know, improve their survivability on the battlefield and so forth like that. So innovation in the army is totally different than it was even five, six years ago. So much more emphasis on soldier centered innovations, but we still see lots of like huge, big prime programs. And so it's a really interesting time to see it. You know, I was thrilled to have been kind of on the ground floor of the army reserve side of the modernization enterprise working in my local community here to try to connect army stakeholders with different types of innovators than they're usually used to dealing with right you know there's not enough folks that can come into atlanta and walk around midtown and georgia tech and find these incredibly smart people with these great ideas and connect them with an army stakeholder so my old unit was kind of like force multipliers for Army Futures Command. And so it was really cool getting to work with everybody, you know, last five years of my career. Sure. That is a nice hat, by the way, but I have to tell you, a comb would have been cheaper than that degree. So <laughs> college wasn't as expensive when I was an undergrad. I see. I see. So coming back to manufacturing, what do you think the cyber threats impacting U.S. manufacturers are? 
and what should organizations do to prepare for them? So it may sound lazy to say ransomware, but the fact of the matter is ransomware is the greatest threat to manufacturers. And I mentioned some examples of that earlier, JBS Foods and North Kedro and Colonial Pipeline and so forth there. With a ransomware incident in corporate IT, broke business processes, and these companies, whether or not it was the right decision, shut down their OT environment. So the pipeline stopped moving oil and you know the food processing plants stopped producing pepperoni pizza and whatnot and the aluminum manufacturer stopped you know producing you know raw aluminum for for their customers and of course all those ot folks you know have safety as their number one priority so their fear is that there's going to be some safety issues in there and then you have the accountants on the other side that are like well we can't calculate how much product we're doing and collect bills and and whatnot and so there's these competing kind of forces over there and ransomware just wreaks havoc on all sorts of enterprises, all sorts of victims there. Mm-hmm. And the impact, you know, to shut down pharmaceuticals, for example, like they don't have to actually get into the factory and dork around with the control systems and mess up, you know, the diabetes medication or anything like that. If they just ransom the ERP in the corporate IT environment in the corporate data center, they can impact the factories over there. And that's what happened actually to Merck, if you recall from the NotPetya incident, when that malware propagated, you know, throughout the world, it completely wrecked Merck. I mean, they had to beg the United States government actually to dip into strategic vaccine stockpiles to meet some of their orders because they lost manufacturing capability, they lost research data, trade secrets and all. And it was a hugely devastating event for Merck. And so ransomware, you know, frankly, it may sound almost dismissive of like some of these really advanced state actors, but ransomware is, you know, the biggest threat for for manufacturing companies. It may not be the sexiest thing out there, but if you can prevent ransomware in your corporate IT environment, you will help keep your OT systems running. Sure. I would completely agree with you. In fact, I would say nation state actors go out of their way to keep you operating so that they can dwell and continue to gain right. understanding of who's getting what and where, in particular in things like pharmaceutical and things like that. Mm-hmm. So taking the aperture up a level, if you will, what are some of the top global supply chain risks? Would you still say that it's just ransomware all the way down? Or are there other factors when you think of, you know, the things that feed into your business? Yeah, it's interesting when we were preparing for this, we didn't know about the 3CX supply chain compromise that allegedly the North Korean government did. And for those that don't know 3CX, it's a VoIP telephony company. So a lot of, it's an alternative to like Cisco and some of the other companies out there that are in that space. The software supply chain stuff is, it's a thing. And it's pretty impactful, but it takes a lot of resources to make that happen, right? So NotPetya was a supply chain thing because the Russians infiltrated the Ukrainian accounting software firm and embedded their code in the SDLC. And then when customers upgraded their their software, they got a free state-sponsored malware, and then it wrecked havoc all through there and self-propagated and everything there, which is similar to what happened you know, with 3CX, North Koreans got in there and added some code into some of the libraries that this tool has. And then, and folks that had auto updates on, you know, got a free implant from the North Korean government. 
but those things are pretty rare and the resources need to pull off like a really good software supply chain thing, you know, are mostly in the state nexus area here, but other supply chain issues for folks to be social manufacturers should be concerned with, you know, we do have to be aware of what's going on in South Asia. So tensions between China and Taiwan can have a few impacts on supply chains. If hostilities were to kick off there, there's a lot of semiconductors on the island of Taiwan, semiconductors built, you know, in China. And so we're going to see those suppliers, you know, kind of have some issues delivering new semiconductors if the hostilities go hot there. The shipping lanes in that same region, the China has been militarizing the South China Sea, building these artificial islands with small airstrips and small ports. And so they're increasingly harassing some of their adversaries in the region. And it's hard for folks to ensure freedom of navigation like the US Navy and other friendly navies in the area. And so if hostilities were to break out between China and Taiwan, we're going to see shipping issues. So shippers will have to move around to the South China Sea, take a longer route, and that's going to increase costs. It's going to increase time to get product to the markets. And so we'll see some issues there, of course. We see no resolution to the war in Ukraine anytime soon. And so we'll probably see some increased costs for hydrocarbons right now because much of the world has made it uh, prohibitive to buy Russian hydrocarbons. And that's going to stay until you know the war is resolved. And even then, there probably will be pressure not to buy Russian hydrocarbons for, for quite a while until there's you know a change of leadership over there. So, you know, energy will still be a supply chain issue, semiconductors, and those global shipping lanes in South China Sea, you know, are very strategic. And if they're disrupted, it's going to cause massive disruptions for the globe, really, for manufactured goods. Sure. Well, thank you for that uh, wide perspective, because I bet that's some things that most people haven't considered. So let's talk skills. What are the key skills and capabilities, in your opinion, are the most essential for individuals looking to build a career either in cyber risk management or in intelligence? Awesome question. And a lot of folks might assume like a technical answer here, right? Oh, you've got to, you know, be able to decipher packets and, you know, decrypt AES-256 or something like that. And, and frankly, no. What's going to help you succeed in cyber risk management or intelligence is critical thinking. It is writing skills, communication skills in general, but writing very specifically. And stakeholder management is very important. So let's take a, a manufacturing example here. If I'm a risk management professional or a cybersecurity professional and I walk into a factory floor and I see an HMI on the wall and there's a post-it note stuck to the frame with a username and password, the kind of traditional security mindset is going to freak out that there is a password in plain text on the wall right there. But I've mentioned a couple of times that safety is priority number one in a factory floor, right? And so there's greater risk in not being able to log into that HMI and render an industrial process to safety than a threat being able to remote in and use that password that is probably only applicable on that single HMI, you know, if it was like a globally known password, that'd be one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the risk of that HMI being compromised by a threat, we want to kind of 
back up a little bit and one we have to consider the safety considerations in that factory floor first how do we ensure safety not really it's not always about security in the factory it's about safety so knowing that stakeholder management so speaking in their language right so on the factory floor those shift leaders supervisors and stuff are thinking in safety so we use their language right we know our audience and we talk to them about you know we want to help you ensure safety here so let's say we've got that password taped to that HMI monitor. Well, let's look around us. What are the controls that we have in place to protect the integrity of that HMI? Do we have locking doors, badge readers, card access? Do we have third-party janitors that come and clean this space? If we do, okay, now we're giving someone access now to that. So now we have to think about, do we escort these people everywhere they go in the factory floor? Do we reach some kind of middle ground where, you know, I kick my trash like out in the hallway and the janitor can collect it. And then I pull my trash can back in, uh, security cameras. Do we have a camera pointing at that HMI that can see that password? And is that security camera accessible from the internet? So let's, you know, pull it back a little bit and think about what risks are we trying to reduce in that scenario? And in, uh, in that factory floor, we're trying to reduce the risk of, you know, the risk to life limb an eyesight for the factory workers in there. And so we got to approach things a little bit differently than in corporate IT, right? Of course, if you were in the accounting department back in headquarters, putting that password on your monitor frame is an absolute no-go, fireable offense, you know, right there. There's too many people in and around there. That's not good practice. But in a factory, it may actually be better to have that password taped to the side of the sure. HMI so that that operator can access it and make those changes quickly. And of course, the writing, like how do we articulate clearly and concisely what the risks are to a business process or to an organization? We can be very, very verbose and we can get down to bits and bytes and whatever, but the audit committee of that board doesn't care about that, right? You know, writing CV 2023, was it 23397, the recent outlook? zero click uh, vulnerability that the Russians were using in Ukraine, board directors, audit committee, they don't care about that, right? So how do we well, frame they care? That? They just don't understand the language. They do care. They, they, they don't need that. to know the CVE number, right? Exactly. You know, for me, they don't know for that. me, being able to recall that like might actually be important in my day-to-day -day job, working right. with threat hunters and so forth. But the board, if I'm telling this to the board, and that's, that might even be too much information for the board, right? So, sure. you know, no, knowing the audience, writing clearly and concisely, and of course, critical thinking, you know, understanding your biases, you know, my bias might be to multi-factor authentication, everything, but maybe MFA is not appropriate on that factory floor. For example, like if there's a, a false rejection of my face or my thumbprint or whatever to get into that HMI, you know, that could be a bad thing because my hands working on the factory floor might be dirty, right? So biometrics may not be the right solution in that case. So, you know, controlling for our biases, controlling for logical fallacies, when we write, when we present risks to audit committees, to business unit leaders and so forth, hugely important, you know, for the most part, we're going to leave out the technical stuff and just distill down that risk to what really matters. You know, what's the likelihood that that business process can get impacted and what will be that impact? Will it shut down for good? Will employees be harmed in any way? Will, are there fines associated with this? What's, what are we trying to, you know, defend against here and what actions can that risk owner take 
to better manage the risk of their area of the business. Sure. So like a nice blend of critical with creative thinking even. Uh, Creative thinking is definitely a part of it. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Excellent. So zooming out, what would the future at Carrier look like and what role uh, are you playing in, in shaping that? Yeah. I mean, Carrier already is the leading HVAC company in the world. So Carrier is going to continue being the leading provider of of health safety and intelligent building cold chain solutions. We have this incredibly diverse workforce uh, as a global company. And we, we have this culture, you know, for getting the most out of folks there. And so we're going to continue innovating in uh, these markets, make good strategic decisions, deliver value for for shareholders and so forth there. And you know, my role obviously there is to help reduce the cyber risk to folks across the company, whether it's factories or it's corporate IT, you know, I lead a team that builds our detections in our security tools that goes and hunts for unknown threats in the environment. And then of course, the threat intelligence piece, we help security leaders and business leaders throughout the company make better decisions when threats might impact their part of the business. Okay. So in the same vein, talking about the future. So five years from now, you know, what do you think cyber risk management will look like then? I think cyber risk managers, GRC folks are going to rely more on their threat intelligence capabilities. And this certainly is more in the Fortune 500, Global 2000 range organizations that can afford to hire and build teams of people like me and the folks that I'm fortunate enough to lead at Carrier. Uh, not every enterprise is going to be able to to have a capability like me, but when we're talking about risk, you know, we have to identify the risk first, right? So how do we identify in cyber where there's a risk? We have to have an, an asset and that asset has to be vulnerable to something and there has to be a threat that is willing and capable to exploit that vulnerability and damage something or steal something right there. So if we don't take into consideration the threat landscape, I don't think we can manage risk as great as possible. There's a lot of you know things in the media that are relevant sometimes, but oftentimes they're just not, right? There's always a slew of press coming out of Black Hat and DEF CON for all these esoteric exploits and vulnerabilities. And frankly, they're just not relevant to most people. Threat enterprise threat intelligence teams a decade ago, you know, started pulling in some data from outside their environment. The top tier threat intel teams today are prioritizing their internal data. So they're seeing all these signals from all their security tools and they are able to identify their threat landscape instead of relying on an external vendor. And where they have gaps, they go and buy a lot of raw data from the different vendors out there. They're not buying APT fuzzy snuggly duck reports from certain vendors out there because that's just not relevant to them. It's not very quick Mm -hmm. because those vendors take their time to produce those reports. That threat may not be very relevant and like the actions or recommendations in those reports may not be very relevant to that company. So my goal is to get my intelligence capability carry up to that top tier level. So prioritizing our internal data, seeing the relevant signals that we already have, you know, and filling in the gaps with, you know, some good high quality 
external data, but not relying on some of these vendors to tell me what my threat landscape is. They don't, they don't have all my telemetry. I do. It's a matter of architecting some of our systems to help extract those signals kind of at scale and at speed to help my security decision makers make quicker, faster decisions. And the external partners aren't ever going to get there by telling me about some random threat group out in the middle of the world somewhere or trolling in some, you know, dark web underground forum. Right. What's most important to me is those signals that I have in my environment. You know, it's all the things that the security controls are detecting and and everything. And for the most part, our SOC is, you know, just going through event after event after event. And I want us to collect all this data and make sense of it and be able to show that audit committee someday, like these are the 50, the 75, the 100 threats that this company sees every day. And here's their capabilities and here's their intent and here's the ones you need to prioritize. And here's where we need to make investments to drive down the cyber risk. Relying on third parties that don't have the visibility that I have may not be the best outcome, if you will. Sure. No, I absolutely agree. You know, our Team Cymru, we make a pure signal platform that the, I would say, the most capable teams using it are using it to produce their own threat intelligence. So they Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. their own signal, like you've described. They have events, let's call them anomalies. They leverage the outside view that we're able to help them with in a way that is for them to get better attribution or understanding of the adversary. And then they create tailored threat intelligence off of that. So as opposed to, like you said, waiting for events to trickle through some type of tip to make their way out to you from some vendor, by the time they get to you, like you said, how does that vendor know you care? How does that vendor know that person's targeting you? I mean, Mm -hmm. and how much space do they think you have in your ACLs, like at your edge, or are you going to just block everything in the world? It's not realistic. So that's, uh, you're not alone for what it's worth in, in that approach. There's a lot of teams using mm-hmm. our stuff that are doing exactly as, as you've described. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. We try to hit that lunchtime sweet spot for length. I feel like we could go on and on. And in fact, uh, you know, based on feedback, if you were game, it'd be great to have you back on sometime in the future. Uh, uh, I'd be honored to. Very unique perspective, uh, very, very interesting and wide approach to everything. I think our listeners were very happy for that. Before we go, if our listeners wanted to keep up with you, what's the best place for them to do that? Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Things like that? Absolutely. Uh, you can. I'm easy to find on, on both LinkedIn and Twitter, Brian P. Kime on both platforms. LinkedIn's obviously more professional, but you get a little more sports on the uh, on the Twitter and so forth there, you know, a little, little bit of dragon, you know, uh, some of the um, malignant actors in the world on my Twitter too. I might talk stuff about the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs every so often and, and get complaints. That's funny. That actually That's did happen funny. once. That's funny. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been very, very fascinating. And I look forward to the feedback uh, from the audience. And like I said, we would love to have you back sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Cheers. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.